Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the Michelle Moore Bosco murder case. But first, your true crime headlines. Two 18-year-olds have been arrested in connection with the murder of a University of Wisconsin-Madison doctor and her husband, who were found lying in a ditch in the University Arboretum, both suffering from gunshot wounds. Dr. Beth Potter was rushed to the hospital where she died of her injuries. Her husband, Robin Carr, was pronounced dead at the scene. University police have announced the arrests of Kari Sanford and Elijah J. LaRue, both 18 years old. Each of the men have been charged with two counts of being a party to the crime of first-degree intentional homicide. Police say that Sanford was known to his family and that this was not a random act, but rather a calculated, cold-blooded, and senseless crime. Both men are being held in Wisconsin's Dane County Jail as they await their appearance in court. A 22-year-old Ohio woman was arrested in Florida last week and charged with murder in the October death of her two-year-old son. Clifford Jace Stark III was rushed to the hospital on October 7th after a 911 call reporting that the child had broken his arm and could barely breathe. He died the next day from internal bleeding. Jace's mother, 22-year-old Tina Dayton, told police that Jace had been injured by falling off the bed. But doctors determined that his injuries were not consistent with a fall from that height. Instead, they determined that Jace had been the victim of child abuse, and they found bruises and other injuries across various parts of his body. A coroner determined that the child died from multiple blunt force trauma, and the manner of death was homicide. A warrant was issued for Dayton's arrest and investigators learned that she had fled to Florida where she was arrested earlier this week. Dayton is in custody facing one count of murder. She has not yet entered a plea and is expected to eventually be extradited back to Ohio. The daughter of pro boxer Floyd Mayweather was arrested in Texas and charged with felony assault with a deadly weapon after a violent altercation with another woman. 19-year-old Iana Mayweather was taken to Harris County Jail after she was arrested for stabbing LaPatra Lachey Jacobs during a fight at the home of rapper NBA Youngboy. Jacobs shares a child with the rapper, whose real name is Kentrell Deshaun Galden. Mayweather and Galden used to be in a relationship, and on the night of the incident, she told police that the fight had been provoked by the rapper. Mayweather told the police that she had never met the victim before that evening. Mayweather was released on $30,000 bond and is scheduled to return to court early this week. Those were your true crime headlines. Next, a case that would go down in history as one of Virginia's most perplexing. But first, a quick break. Love TV, but hate the size of your cable bill? I think we all do. Philo is your solution. Philo has everything you need, live and on demand, for just $20 a month. For the true crime junkie, there's no better way to watch. 
Philo has ID Lifetime A&E plus more than 50 other channels like MTV, VH1, BET, Vice, Comedy Central, History, Nickelodeon, Paramount, A&E, Discovery, and so much more. They even have Law and Crime, the trial network. Never miss a minute of shows like The First 48, Homicide Hunter, Killing Eve, RuPaul's Drag Race, The Walking Dead, The Daily Show, the list goes on and on, plus classics like Law and Order, Friends, and more. Save hundreds a month on TV. Philo is the most affordable way to watch at a time when everyone could use some entertainment in their life. Philo is cord-free, commitment-free, hassle-free, and has unparalleled customer service and no contracts. And with unlimited DVR, you can save all of your favorite shows so that you can watch on your own schedule. Plus, Philo allows for multiple profiles and multiple streams so that everyone in the house can have their own saved shows and up to three simultaneous streams. Look, we're going to be stuck inside together for a while. Let's not kill each other over who gets to pick what to watch. Now more than ever, Philo believes that great TV shouldn't cost an arm and a leg. It should be accessible to everyone, and saving money shouldn't mean giving up the shows and channels that you love. Watch from your phone, laptop, tablet, or TV with Roku, Fire TV, Apple TV, or Android TV. It's easy to use and super easy to sign up. Philo is TV for everyone. Sign up today at philo.tv slash mm and you'll get 25% off your first two months. That's p-h-i-l-o dot tv slash mm. Are you experiencing stress? Anxiety? Do you have chronic pain or trouble sleeping? You're not alone. In fact, if you aren't experiencing at least one of these things, I don't think you're paying attention. If you're searching for something that might help, it's time to try Feels. Feels is premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep. Feels naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness, something we could all use help with right now. And it's easy to take. Just place a few drops of Feels under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. Finding your right dose is important and everyone's dose is different so leave room to experiment over the course of a week or so you might need to take a little more or a little less to get just the right dose for you up until recently i was taking the mildest dose at 40 milligrams a day for my chronic back pain sometimes i'd bump that up if i was having a particularly bad day to about 80 milligrams these days i'm at 160 milligrams because I need all the feels right now. And don't worry, feels works naturally to help you feel better. There's no high, no hangover, and no addiction. But if you're new to CBD and you need a little guidance, feels has real human support who will answer all of your questions on their free CBD hotline. Join the feels community now and get feels delivered to your door every month. You'll save money on every order, and you can pause or cancel at any time. Feels is helping me feel better every day, 
and it can help you too. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash mm and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash mm. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash mm. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Michelle Moore Bosco's murder and the bumpy road to justice. Michelle Moore Bosco grew up in Pittsburgh, a city known for its rich steel industry, where the Steelers got their name, and hundreds of bridges, including an identical trio that carry traffic across the Allegheny River. When she graduated from high school, Jules' You Are Meant For Me and Puff Daddy's I'll Be Missing You ranked high in America's Top 40, songs that would soon hold profound meaning for Michelle's husband, Billy Bosco. Three years after Michelle's rape and murder, when she was only 18, Billy 19, investigative journalist Matt Dolan wrote about their romance and the case for the Virginian pilot. The pair met on a school bus in 1994, according to Dolan. Immediately struck by the girl who looked like Sandra Bullock only with red hair, Billy approached her. Hey toots, nice jacket. My name is Michelle, she replied. Michelle wore a long purple coat and thick, red-rimmed glasses. Billy's hair was slicked back above his black leather jacket. Later, friends would remember Michelle as sweet and goofy, with a gentle sense of humor. Billy was a bit more rebellious. He had three tattoos, played Metallica songs on guitar, and smoked his first cigarette years prior. And they had both absorbed a message common for their generation, that the grass was greener away from Pittsburgh. Since neither of them were focused on academics or athletics, they took another route, spending part of their school day learning a trade at a local technical school. Michelle studied cosmetology and Billy culinary arts. Meanwhile, the pair forged a friendship. Billy tried asking her out time and again, but Michelle didn't seem interested, until, that is, he stopped asking and moved on to someone else. Dolan wrote that Michelle spoke up like this two days later. So this is how you are? You give up that easily? You keep trying. That's how it works. While playing hard-to-get notions are dated, they were still fairly common then. Once Michelle stopped that game, romance flourished. Billy asked her out, and just two hours later, under a stairwell at school, their lips locked and their relationship was sealed. They would stay together, spending plentiful time hiking, picnicking, laughing a lot, and more, until Michelle's final days. In early July of 1997, Billy and Michelle were married in an informal group ceremony with two other couples. Michelle wore a simple white dress and green cowboy boots. They couldn't afford rings. Soon after, they signed a lease for a humble apartment near Naval Station Norfolk in Virginia, which suited Billy's budget and needs as a sailor for the U.S. Navy. Weeks after moving in, they met a man named Omar Ballard, a friend of their friend, Tamika. At one point, they took him into their home after a crowd chased him, accusing him of hitting a woman in the apartment complex. Another sailor who lived nearby, Daniel Williams, gave Tamika the creeps. He always seemed to be lingering around Michelle, she thought, fixating on her, especially when Billy was away. 
That July, Billy returned from a week at sea, anticipating Michelle greeting him on the pier. When he didn't see her, he took a cab home, opening the door to an especially tidy apartment. It was as though she had cleaned in honor of his return. But the place also seemed empty. Was she at her new job? Billy knew she had been hired at a fast food restaurant. If only that had been the case. Walking toward the bathroom, he spotted Michelle's lifeless body on the bedroom floor. She was half naked, but still wearing gold jewelry. Her arms were stretched above her head, her hair pulled back in a clip. Desperate and stunned, Billy couldn't find his portable phone, so he raced to a neighbor's home. Daniel, the man who seemed to have a crush on Michelle, answered and phoned the police. So incensed, Billy punched a wall, fracturing his hand. When the police arrived, Detective Maureen Evans asked Tamika, Michelle's friend, who she believed may have murdered her. Tamika pointed suspicion at Daniel Williams. It wasn't just a crush, she felt, but an obsession. Detective Evans said the crime scene took her breath away. It looked as though Michelle had been sexually assaulted, given that she was found wearing only a shirt. Blood spatter dotted the floor around her, signs of coughing, of suffering. The police team canvassed the area, looking for any information that might help solve the case. In doing so, they learned that two other crimes had been reported in the complex around the same time. A woman who was struck by an assailant, leading to an arrest and mugging charge for Omar Ballard, the man Billy and Michelle had taken in after the crowd chased him. Although Ballard was in the area, fit the description of Michelle's attacker, knew her, and had a violent checkered past, detectives focused on Daniel Williams. Within hours of Michelle's murder, they arrested him. After an interrogation that went all night, surpassing 11 hours, Williams confessed to the rape and murder. His signed confession states that he beat her with a shoe. When an autopsy showed that she was stabbed and strangled, not beaten, he signed a new confession, claiming that he stabbed Michelle. Though police knew that his first confession wasn't accurate and he had passed a polygraph on his initial claim of innocence, they arrested Williams, charging him with rape and capital murder. Weeks later, Ballard was arrested for raping and beating a teenage girl. Williams was newly married at the time. The wedding had been moved up upon learning that his partner, Nicole, had ovarian cancer. That November, with Williams behind bars, Nicole died. With his lawyer's help, he filed a motion to have his confession suppressed, which the judge denied. One month later, DNA analysts told investigators that their test excluded Williams from samples pulled from the crime scene. The police and prosecutors on the case would keep this information for themselves for over six months. That January, two months after learning about those DNA results and well before sharing the findings, prosecutors offered Williams a plea deal of a life sentence, a deal he denied, holding staunchly to his claim of innocence. His confessions, he said, were forced. Detective Robert Glenn Ford, the officer who recorded those confessions, couldn't secure any DNA evidence linking Williams to the crime, so he questioned Williams' former roommate, 
another sailor, Joe Dick. Remarkably, he confessed too, claiming that Michelle welcomed him and Williams into her apartment where they raped her. Joe also said he hit Michelle in the face and threatened her with a kitchen knife, a weapon he couldn't seem to describe, then stabbed her. Then he used a blanket to wipe his penis off, he said, before placing the blanket over Michelle. He said this all took place in the living room and that Williams may have dragged her body into the bedroom afterward. Ford arrested Dick, charging him, too, with rape and capital murder. That didn't add up, considering that Dick's Navy supervisor, Michael Ziegler, said Dick was on duty the night of the murder. Ziegler told Alan Burlow, a reporter for the New York Times, that he looked after Dick because of his diminished mental capacity, his special needs. Ziegler double-checked his records to make sure he was on duty on that particular ship then, a ship with rigorous security. It would have been nearly impossible for the sailor to sneak away, commit the crime, and return without anyone noticing. The Joseph Dick I knew couldn't chew bubblegum and tie his shoes at the same time, Ziegler told Burlow. There's no way in hell anyone can convince me Joseph Dick could pull that off. Superiors told Ziegler that the investigation was a civil matter and that he would be contacted as needed by police. That never happened. Days after Dick's arrest, Ballard pled guilty to the attack and rape of the teen girl. A month later, in February 1998, he pled guilty to beating a woman with a bat. For those crimes, he was sentenced to 41 years in prison. Weeks after that, DNA analysis excluded Dick from the sample found at the crime scene, too. If you're wondering how Detective Ford seemed to be getting suspects to dramatically change their stories, that's a good question. He had done so before. In 1990, nearly a decade before Michelle Moore Bosco's murder, he had secured false confessions from teenagers in the Lafayette Grill case, which involved robbery and murder. While he was temporarily reassigned to uniform duty, he was later put back on homicide. Still lacking DNA evidence to tie Williams or Dick to Michelle's case, Ford knew others needed to be implicated. According to Dick, a jail informant convinced him to help that along, leading him to write a letter incriminating Eric Wilson, another sailor and a friend of Williams' wife. Ford interrogated Wilson for nine hours, gleaning another confession, another arrest, and more charges of rape and capital murder. When Wilson's DNA was ruled out from the crime scene sample too, Ford interrogated Dick again, this time leading to finger-pointing at another man, Derek Tice. And the pattern continued further, another lengthy interrogation ending in a confession and arrest and charges. The four men, Daniel Williams, Joseph Dick, Derek Tice, and Eric Wilson, quickly became known as the Norfolk Four. Tice implicated two other men as well, but neither of them confessed. Then something major happened, the kind of thing that typically breaks open a case. In February 1999, a woman named Karen Stover gave police a letter from Ballard, who remained in prison. In it, Ballard threatened to have her killed unless she sent him money and, quote, nasty pictures of herself. He also confessed to Michelle Moore Bosco's murder, writing, One last thing. You remember that night I went to Mommy's house and the next morning Michelle got killed? Guess who did that? Me. 
ha ha. Ha ha appeared in all caps. Ballard's DNA was tested and matched the samples from the crime scene. They now had a fully voluntary confession and crime scene evidence supporting it. When Detective Ford confronted Ballard, he confessed in a mere 20 minutes. Also unlike the other's lengthy interrogations, his recorded confession included accurate descriptions of the knife and the crime scene, without any prompting, and included details none of the others had mentioned, plus a time frame that matched up with Tamika Taylor's testimony. What made you go back and rape and kill her? Ford asked Ballard. I don't know, he replied. I just snapped. It's blank. The only problem with that confession, according to Ford, was that Ballard swore he acted alone. At the end of his session, the detective asked Ballard if he wished to add anything to his statement. No, Ballard replied. Just that them four people that opened their mouths is stupid. The state theorized that Ballard confessed because he was serving a life sentence already and feared being considered a snitch. Prosecutors argued that as a black man, Ballard feared people knowing he committed a crime with white men. Attorneys for the Norfolk Four said there were very obvious reasons Ballard didn't identify them. He didn't know them, and he had acted alone. Michelle trusted Ballard, so she let him in. He trailed her to the bedroom where he raped and murdered her. That explained why the apartment was largely undisturbed. Even so, the state convinced three separate juries to accept a different version. That the defendants encountered Ballard outside the apartment complex, and he let them in. One year after telling Ford he was guilty and acted alone, Ballard was brought in for more questioning. There, he said, Ford told him that if he wanted to avoid the death penalty, he would have to sign off on a version of the story he had never heard before one that incriminated the Norfolk Four. In exchange, he would get two life sentences. That statement, Ballard said, was totally false. Ballard never testified against or on the behalf of any of the Norfolk Four. Dick became the state's star witness against Tyson Wilson and followed his lawyer's suggestion to stick with his life sentence plea. In 1999, Williams, the first man charged with the rape and murder, pled guilty after being promised a life sentence in exchange for a stipulation of facts. In an interview with Frontline in 2010, Williams' attorney, Danny Shipley, said this about that decision. There were some problems with the way entry was gained into the apartment, where one of the defendants said they used a ball-peen hammer or something, and yet there was no damage to the floor. But in Virginia, problems with the physical evidence are trumped usually by a confession. And if you look at the jury comments in the Tice case... They said we know there was problems with the physical evidence, but the confession was all that really mattered. The confession washed everything away. Shipley had 35 years of experience with the Virginia court system by then and said he knew jurors tended to be very unskeptical of police testimony. Getting them to disbelieve a false confession seemed highly unlikely. In the end, all four men were convicted of charges related to the rape and murder of Michelle Moore Bosco. Over the next 10 years, they all recanted their confessions and entered multiple appeals, finally gaining support for a clemency campaign and receiving conditional pardons from the governor of Virginia in 2009. The Norfolk Four case, four young sailors with no criminal records confessing to the rape and murder 
of the young wife of a fellow sailor is now considered one of the most bizarre in Virginia's history. Former Virginia Attorney General Richard Cullen called it the worst miscarriage of justice he had experienced in his 40 years as a lawyer. Human errors happen, he acknowledged, and thankfully, DNA evidence can help correct honest mistakes. This, however, was intentional. Despite numerous appeals and pardon bids backed by former FBI agents and five trials, Norfolk officials did not turn over various influential police records until 2015, when a judge ordered them to do so. By then, the convictions were widely known to be produced largely by Robert Glenford's hands. And that all started early on, when the shoe confession came about. Maureen Evans, the detective who initially led Michelle's murder investigation, said she saw reason to interview Ballard early on. No one told her about the other crime he had committed that day, she told the Richard Times Dispatch. As far as she knew, he was just an acquaintance of Michelle. She also told police that she believed Williams passed his polygraph, claiming his innocence, only because he was a sociopath. So she told him he failed. I then started offering him the theme that maybe he and the victim were developing a mutual affection, but something went wrong, she said, according to state police interview transcripts. I could see that he was interested in the idea. I suggested to him that maybe they were having sex and she tried to stop because she became afraid of her husband finding out. She then suggested that, when she tried to stop, Williams grew angry and hit her with something, like maybe a fist or a shoe. Then Williams blurted, I don't know, I might have sleepwalked. When she couldn't get a confession, Detective Ford volunteered to take over. After speaking with Williams, Ford said he confessed to raping Michelle and hitting her head with a shoe. In 2011, Ford was sentenced to 12 and a half years in prison for taking bribes from criminals and lying to police. In 2017, two decades after the rape and murder of Michelle Moore Bosco, new exculpatory evidence was found. The Norfolk Four, receiving absolute pardons, were exonerated. The following year, they received a combined settlement of $3.5 million from the state of Virginia and $4.9 million from the city of Norfolk for the wrongful convictions. The miscarriages of justice couldn't have been easy for Billy or Michelle's family either. Earlier on at the trial, Billy took the stand and spoke about his relationship with Michelle, his sweet, goofy young bride. Every step I took, we took together, he said. We had so many plans. And you look around our apartment, we don't have a whole lot, but we were proud of what we had because we both worked to get it. Michelle's mother, Carol, told the jury how the death of her daughter had impacted the family. At first, she tried to protect her younger sons from the truth, telling them Michelle had died in a car crash. My two boys, I can't even give my whole self to them, she testified. It's not fair. Michelle was laid to rest in her hometown of Pittsburgh. When Dolan's piece about the couple released, her family was visiting her gravesite every week, touting balloons and flowers. For Halloween, they'd brought a carved pumpkin. Before the murder, Michelle and Billy spoke about what might happen if one of them were to die early. 
Given that Billy was a sailor for the Navy, they assumed that any tragedy would involve him losing his life at war. Regardless, they agreed that if one of them passed on, the other had a right to happiness. When Billy spoke to Dolan, then 22, he was growing close to a woman named Amy, who sang him Patsy Cline songs, stood by him at hearings, and spoke about wanting to someday have children. Billy was still carrying snapshots of Michelle in his wallet from the day they said their I do's then. He felt the need to tell Michelle, her memory, that Amy's presence in his life didn't signify that he didn't love her anymore or that he didn't still miss her. I'm not saying I'm trying to forget, he said. I never want to, and I never could. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.